0: Please follow God's Word today. I invite you to have a Bible open and follow as I'm reading from Genesis chapter 16, the entire short chapter of Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Hear God's Word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. "'Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her.'" Abram agreed to do what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress.'" Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well is called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barat. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And this is the Word of God. The human... Mind is always hungry for a shortcut. When I think of shortcuts, one memory takes me back to high school days when students, I will confess that I never was one who did it, but there were students who bought Cliff's Notes. Does everybody know Cliff's Notes? If you don't want to read that long, complicated novel the teacher has assigned, you buy the pamphlet from Cliff's Notes. Gives you a handy summary. Each character is spelled out. The basic plot line is there. And if you would learn what is in Cliff's notes, you probably could get a C on the test without reading the book. These days, there are all kinds of shortcuts. One of the interesting ones to me is the way people seem to think that even the formation of vital lifelong relationships can be shortcutted by... Various forms of computer dating services. Fill out your complicated data form and the computer will match you up with someone with compatible data. I call this relationship on steroids. Because you jump immediately to the 15th or 20th step that most, most relationships take many months to get to. Now, I'm not condemning that. I've performed presided at weddings of folks who met that way, and I think they're doing well. But be careful. Be careful about shortcuts in relationships. Today, we're continuing to explore the faith development of God's key man, Abram, and we're looking at him in Genesis 16 in another deep valley of failure. He's been doing well for the last couple of chapters after failure in Egypt earlier, but now Abram and his wife venture into a spiritual blunder that to our 21st century eyes seems so blatantly wrong and immoral, we ask ourselves, how could these people be followers of God and do this thing? Whenever I start asking those kind of questions about biblical people, I just stop and think about the things that I know I must do in my own life that are pretty blatantly wrong, and yet I can't see myself with good eyes, objective eyes, in the cold light of day. It's very easy to find fault with biblical believers and perhaps excuse things just as difficult in our lives. This spiritual failure comes on the heels of success. Abram's been riding the crest of a wave. We would think his faith has been strong enough the last uh, several events we've seen that he certainly would, would sail right along. And yet Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you are standing firm, take heed. That is the time when perhaps you're ready to fall away. And what we have here in Genesis 16 is a classic situation of trying to solve a spiritual problem with the shortcut of human devices and wisdom rather than patient trust in the plan of God. Now, a problem is presented in the very opening words of this chapter, a real problem. Now, Sarai had borne Abram no children. The whole covenant of God was keynoted in the last chapter on the fact that Abram would have a son, a biological son of his own. God had made that very clear. You will be the father of a son. But that son, with Abram now 85 plus, was nowhere in sight. Sarai had no children. She was, we think, about a decade younger, but in her mid-70s, she certainly was forming the conclusion that this son was not going to be from her. And so God's whole predicted covenant of a vast nation that would flow out of this man and the son he would have seemed to be in jeopardy. And these two people, well, we can praise them one way. They were godly. They wanted to see God's covenant fulfilled, and they thought maybe God needs our help. It doesn't seem to be happening by natural means here. Maybe we need to come up with something That involves, as we say, thinking outside the box in order to see this Son be born. Well, what we learn is a very simple but powerful lesson here, that God's ends never justify just any old means of attaining them. I have two main points for you today, and first in Genesis 16, 1 through 6, we see that the folly of human expediency shortcuts way to God's goal. We're introduced to this marital triangle of Abram and Sarai and the servant Hagar, and I remind you that as we've been tracing this man's life, remember where Hagar came into the picture. Back at the last time that there was disobedience and lapse of faith, in Egypt, when they acquired many goods and camels and all those things, also servants, including, you would think, this young woman Hagar, the Egyptian, she came into their lives at a time of disobedience, and now she figures in a key way in this time of lack of faith. And yet, it would seem to me that even as Americans living in the 21st century with sexual immorality so widespread in our country, it's amazing that we look back on this and we're actually shocked at what happens here. Shocked. I mean, if anybody you knew did this, you wouldn't even know how to talk about it, that someone brought in the the servant or the, the cleaning woman or whatever and said, well, we haven't been able to have a child, maybe you can help us out here. You say, stunning, terrible, immoral. But the amazing thing is, it actually was something quite socially acceptable and even entirely legal in the ancient world. We have learned something about the way things were done in the ancient world as they have found the laws of King Hammurabi. Maybe you've heard of him before from world history. Hammurabi had a system of very detailed laws, several hundred of them that have been passed down from ancient cultures. They seem to be laws that were sort of common. Instead of Ten Commandments, there were, I think, about almost 200 of them, different principles, and among them were principles that sanctioned this sort of surrogate motherhood because it was so important in that world to have a son who would become the heir of the father's estate. And so we have this plot, and it begins as a piece of folly proposed by Sarai, who's been pretty much the silent partner in things so far. She hasn't spoken before, and even though uh, we have saw some strange dealings involving her in an earlier chapter... She's a very beautiful woman. That's been testified to. She's now about 75. You know, you do have to give Sarai some credit here. If selfishness was her motive, she wouldn't have done this thing. You have to sense that she wanted to honor her husband and honor the promise of God in order to put away her own pride and her own sense of being the exclusive wife and say, I'll step aside and recommend this idea if it will do the things that God has said should happen. In a backhanded sense, it does her credit anyway that she was unselfish in this. God had said her husband had to have a son, and and her mind must have been ticking and said, Now, I questioned my husband about that, and it didn't say that it had to be my son, only that it was Abraham's son. And actually, the text did not say that it was Sarai's son when that was predicted. I have found over the years when people ask me questions about things they find in the Bible that puzzle them, one of the really big issues uh, for many people is what they see as immorality by people who are called people of faith. And I've been asked many times, Pastor, what about this polygamy practiced by the patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abram, Isaac, Jacob? They had multiple wives. Did God want that? Was God pleased with that? And, of course, you may know that the Mormon church at one time argued that, well, this is God's plan. This is what God wants. Just look. Look at all the examples of godly men who did this. It has to be God's plan, right? Wrong. There are a lot of things done in the Bible by godly people that don't have God's stamp of approval on them. And polygamy is one. These people lived in a, in a day and a time when society did sanction this. And yet the Lord had already given his firm pattern in Scripture as to what marriage and intimate behavior between a man and a woman was to be like, and it's set there in Genesis chapter 2. Right at the very beginning, when God created the man and the woman, he said the man is to give himself exclusively to his wife, and they cleave to each other and exclude all others. Monogamous marriage of a man and a woman for life is God's pattern. It's set there in the Garden of Eden. There's no accident that it's right there at the beginning of everything. It's what God wanted. It was God's way of blessing. And when people stepped apart from that, You know, maybe what you would think would be that the Lord would sort of thunder at them a little bit, saying, you naughty guy, you know, you disobeyed in the area of taking another wife. I'm going to get you for it. Well, the Old Testament never shows that, and the Lord never says that. But I believe every single example you can see anywhere in the Scripture where anyone did step apart from God's model of one man and one woman The negative consequences and the disaster and the chaos that affected families even for generations after are the clear sign that they were departing from the way of God and the principle of God for marriage. You can judge what is God's will and what isn't by whether it produces sweet fruit or sour fruit that sets a whole family's teeth on edge. And in the Old Testament, polygamy always Always, multiple marriage always produced negative results. Sarai, in some ways, is a woman that we, I think, would want to pity. Yes, she does propose something here that doesn't have prayer about it. It doesn't have the leading of God about it. And yet I think in the church today, we probably do not carefully think about the bitter life and self-worth of a, a woman, a wife, who is unable to bear children. She probably bears a lot of false guilt, a lot of a sense of inadequacy that somehow, and it's hinted at here, the Lord has kept me from having children. She almost seems to see it as a judgment. And she thought, well, maybe I'm just not any good. I better step aside and see if God can do it some other way. Well, the problem deepens when we look at the folly that Abram accepts and cooperates with. And, folks, he may seem like the passive partner here, but he's the one at blame. In exactly the same way as the entire Bible looks back on the Garden of Eden and says, it was Adam who sinned. Now, true. A woman came and proposed something to him, and yet Scripture looks at the man as the moral and spiritual leader of the relationship and puts the blame on him for doing this. Husbands, if you think you'll be able to stand before the Lord someday and say, well, Lord, you know, it was my wife's idea, no. That's what spiritual leadership is about. I talk to young couples and I have the opportunity before their marriage, Pastor Light usually does the, the premarital counsel, but one of the things I say, or I'll say it in a wedding homily, is look, what is this leadership thing that, that God gives to husbands? It certainly isn't a domineering, you know, you do what I tell you to do at all times. No, it's, it's compassionate, it's quiet, it's strong. And I'll tell you what, much of the time, just looking at the two of you, It wouldn't seem like one is actually leading. But when it comes to a question of what do we do in some sticky circumstance, it needs to be the husband who will step forward. If if the wife isn't stepping forward and says, we need to pray, we need to consult the Word of God, we need to listen to the principles of God. Husbands, if you have a Christian wife, I will tell you that 98% or 99% of the time, She's going to want the things that God wants, but you have to be there for that one or two percent and not just cave in when she doesn't want what God wants, and you need to say, Honey, it's time to stop. I don't think we've listened to God about this. Let's seek His will and wait on Him. And that's why Abram is so much to blame here. He just… Cops out of the whole situation. We can't blame Hagar in one sense. She was a servant girl. She wasn't a slave. She was a servant. She had to do what she was told, basically, but yet she bears a little blame when she started this pride game parading around the tent. I'm having the child that you're not having. And wow, does Sarai go ballistic over that. She couldn't handle it. She had not bargained on living with that. I was reminded of a verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 3.21 says there are three things that make the earth tremble. I'll let you look it up and see what thing number one and thing number two are. Three things that make the earth tremble. But here's thing number three. A maidservant that displaces her mistress makes the earth tremble. And so that the ground under the tent of Abram and Sarai and Hagar was certainly trembling with discordant emotion. Abram wouldn't deal with it. Sarai was shrieking in her wounded emotional state, and Hagar simply fled the scene. I'm out of here, off to Egypt. Well, secondly, then, our passage from verse 7 onward to the end of the chapter witnesses another thing. And it is the wonderful mercy of God amidst our marital messes. Hagar comes on the center stage receiving an unexpected visitor and an unanticipated blessing. There was a tangled mess here. And and the answer that Hagar thought was the only answer was, I'm out of here. And isn't that what we do much of the time? We haven't been able to work out all the tense relationships that are going on in our home or in some vital relationship or marriage, and I'm gone. I'm just not going to put up with this. Hagar made a great discovery. She met with a special person who's called the angel of the Lord. First time in the Bible that that person is designated who it does appear a number of other times. And she receives a message for herself as the disadvantaged victim that God is ready to restore. He sees her circumstance. He's ready to restore and ready to forgive. She was at a spring in the desert, a place where you would expect physical refreshment to happen. And there she met this angel of the Lord, and who that is exactly is a, quite a discussion among the theologians and commentators The reason this angel of the Lord stands out for some special notice is because when people have talked to this person, they draw the conclusion by the end of the conversation, even if they don't know at first who it is, they seem to draw the conclusion, God has just spoken to me. And there are theologians who will say, well, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament should be understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I think we my own thoughts are a little more cautious on that. I believe the angel of the Lord is a mysterious person. He certainly is, a, is revealing truth from God. He certainly is a person of divine origin. But this divine messenger does indeed come and give the powerful communication that God sees you and wants to bless you. Hagar gave him a name. You are the God of God who sees me? She marveled over him. You saw my situation. Remember, she's just a nobody. She served in the camp of this man, Abram, who worshipped God Most High. She certainly heard Abram talking about the Most High God and saw the altars that he had built and everything else, but she had no knowledge of this God. Now she encounters a revelation from him, And she's assured even regarding this child who's going to be born, what his name will be, what he'll be like, Ishmael, a man who, it is said, would be like a wild donkey. One commentator says Ishmael would be born with a permanent chip on his shoulder and his finger on a hair trigger. That's exactly what his life was like. Everybody would be his enemy, and he would be everyone's enemy, and we know that Ishmael was the father of the Arab nations. This becomes really important, doesn't it? Because we know what happens as history unwinds over the centuries. The Arab nations born out of Abraham through Ishmael are the constant opponents and divisive, violent adversaries of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. And they are today. And it's in our news just about every single day what the people of Ishmael and the people of Isaac are doing to one another. The ill effects of this sin were long, long reaching. But yet here is the mother of Ishmael being told, you can have God's blessing. You need to do a simple thing. Go back and submit yourself. To your mistress. In fact, you actually sinned. It was wrong of you to vaunt your pride against Sarai. Go back. Tell her you're sorry. Tell her you want to serve in her house. Tell her you want to start again. And the God who saw Hagar was ready to show mercy and give a blessing of a new start. There are a lot of applications, and we don't have time for many of them, but just let me make two from this text today. The obvious one is the lesson that in pursuing any revealed goal from God, no matter what it be, the end never justifies the means. You can't justify trying to achieve a holy purpose by unholy methodologies, Centuries later, Paul wrote to the Galatian church, Galatians 3.3, 3, he challenged people there and said, after beginning so well with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort alone? One of the ways I can see from my vantage point in our modern day that, that this happens is in the whole area of planting new churches. There are many people interested in planting new churches in our times. Well, that's a good thing, you would think. But the question is, what are they planting? You can plant uh, an organization, you can plant something that gathers a group of people using slick marketing techniques and strategies that aim at satisfying the felt needs, that's the big slogan word, the felt needs of people in a community. Just scratch where they itch, you see. Make it attractive to what they find to be their needs and you'll gather a crowd you might gather a very large crowd. And then you'll find yourself asking, all right, well, now we're a church. What do we do as a church? Well, I guess the way we got these people here was to just take care of their felt needs, so we just go on meeting their felt needs, right? Is that what a biblical church does? Or are there some other rather distinctive goals that obey the Lord and are not just about pleasing people and telling people what they want to hear. Another area in which our passage certainly bears some application for us, I think, is a warning, a stark warning of God's way for the human relationship of a man and woman called marriage. Once again, he established the pattern back in Genesis. Monogamous marriage between one man and one woman is his way, for the satisfaction of the joy and delight of human sexuality and and producing children. Every side road, every shortcut that tries to skirt around that or give it another name or follow another procedure is a departure, and it's not under the pleasure of God. You well know today that our society is desperately trying to redefine marriage all over the place, Man and man, woman and woman. Why not call this marriage? They love each other, don't they? Why would you be mean to them? We accept them. We think that's the way it should be. And guess what? What are we getting now these days? Sixty-five something percent of the population saying, I'm fine with it. God's not fine with it. It's not God's ideal. It's not God's way to creating a family. And God can't smile on that, which is a shortcut of His way. Uh, Certainly another way is the widespread practice of living together apart from marriage. God is in favor of marriage, a man and a woman totally committed to one another. You know, I don't know uh, how much detail you read of the local paper, but sometimes I'm bored enough that I even read not just the marriage licenses section. I even go down and read the whole thing. Where do they live? Oh, here's, here's uh, Julia, let's say, who lives in Leola, and she's marrying Howard, who lives in Lidditz. Okay, that's good. But then the next one, we've got Jane and Fred, same address. And the next one, we've got Mary and Bob, same address. Now, I'm taking it that same address means these folks are already enjoying Intimate companionship without the benefit of marriage. The statistics say good old conservative Lancaster County, more than 40% of all couples live together before marriage. I remember quite a few years ago, don't search for who these people are, you won't think of them. A couple, both professing Christian faith, came and approached. They said, Okay, Pastor, will you marry us? Can we be married? So on. We were talking listening to their testimony, asking about their lives. And they said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, we're just about to, we've just taken out a, a lease on an apartment, and we're going to be living in this apartment together. But we want you to, to understand clearly, Pastor, you know, we are believers in Christ. Uh, this is a two-bedroom apartment. We're going to live there, but we're not going to live together. We're not going to be intimate before the wedding. I said, oh, Really? And in so many words, I said, Who do you think you're kidding? And I wouldn't approve presiding at their wedding. They were quite shocked. Don't you want us to save money? Why, we have to pay for two places to live. Well, I was ready to say, one of you can come and live at my house if that's what it takes. But I'm not going to put my stamp on your scheme of shortcutting God's pattern. Unbiblical practices may seem to be legalized by broad social approval. Everybody's doing it. But God's Word tells us there's one way, one model, one proven path to the happiness of a man and woman. And Genesis 2 will tell you all about it. Believers who opt for mere societal approval and their sexual unions will pay a cost maybe a long-term cost, maybe even in generations ahead of them. But God is faithful. This isn't a message of condemnation. The whole last half of Genesis 16 is a message of blessing. God is faithful. He sees the one who was the victim of all this. He pursued her. He heard her. And he approached her with blessing and said, now look, you're not without responsibility. I want you to go back, admit what you've done, Make an open confession, and you can have a new life. The God of Hagar is the God who sees you and me. He sees all the messes in our past. He's the God who forgives. There may be an Ishmael rattling around somewhere in your background, and those scars, you know, don't go away automatically just because you come to the Lord and confess but the god who sees you is the god of compassion and the god of a new beginning i think of a verse in second chronicles 16 that is a good last word here today if we talk about god seeing us second chronicles 16 promises this the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The God who sees is the God who forgives. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray that you might look upon us, look upon some today who probably might be dealing with scars and difficulties or maybe even current tragedy of a kind like this. Thank you for the promise of grace. Thank you that in Jesus Christ all things become new. But I pray, Father, that you'd give us the humility to repent, to seek, to make known what we've done wrong to you and to others, and then give us the joy that Hagar experienced there at that well in the desert as she praised the God who saw her for Jesus' sake. Amen.